This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In today's episode, we will hear about the introduction of the living creatures, and subsequently, as the pattern has already been established with the other aspects of nature, their role and function. We must remember that the themes introduced in the first book of the Bible will continue to be developed and referenced as the divine teaching issued to humanity by the scriptural God. It's a big deal. If we miss something here, we might find ourselves wandering in the Midbar, the wilderness. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. So there are multiple things to note here before we get into the meat and potatoes of the text Um, as we've read in previous episodes, the order in which these different aspects of nature are introduced and the function that we've talked about. We still haven't got to humans. So the importance of man is subverted by the order in which the authors choose to introduce these different aspects. So I just want to point out that we're still not to the human beings. To top it all off, humans are made from dirt, from the dust of the ground. We will continue to see that the authors mean to communicate the fact that humans are not important, on their own at least. They are not special. They are animals made from the same stuff as the other animals, with the same breath of life as the other animals. As I said, we are not yet to the creation of the humans, but we must take the whole picture into account in order to not skim over this part of the text as many of us often do. But let us not get too excited about this. We'll get there. All of these things are extremely important because we like often to read in our own ego into the story, especially when reading in the English language. However, the Hebrew does not allow this. The authors are employing once again a clever use of wordplay and aural repetition, so please let's let us hear it in the original. Vayomer Elohim ishratsu hamaim shorats nefesh haya. So notice that the creation of the sharat, that is, the swarmers, 
in the Ophiotheft, that is the flying flyers. Notice how that is opposed to the stationary vegetation. That's important. Notice the emphasis on the movement, the vitality. The importance of this will become clearer later on with the blessing of fruitfulness. Right. So if we remember the, the parts of reality that we've been introduced to shortly before this text, in our last episode, we had the luminaries, and just before that, the vegetation. Uh, so Blaze is right. We'll continue to see how movement is given special importance. The moving creatures rely on God, as does the shepherd. But mankind has a tendency to set up shop and build a city, which ultimately leads to destruction because they worship other gods, which is ultimately the reality of worshiping oneself. Providing for and worshiping the self, we will hear over and over again, leads only to death. One must be in the mindset of the shepherd, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, always on the move, trusting God to provide. And so the word that's at the, the, the center of all this is the word nefesh. Now, this is an incredibly important word, and it's vital that we treat it with importance. This word is sometimes translated into the English as soul, but uh, that's totally misleading, and I would recommend the listener not to conflate those ideas. The King James Version of the Bible egregiously rendered nefesh in different ways depending on its translator's own theological biases. In this very verse, the KJV translates nefesh chaya to moving creature, which on its own is actually a really good translation. But when we skip forward to chapter 2, when God is making the man into a nefesh chaya, which is the exact same phrase in the Hebrew, the translators modified the text by saying that the man had become a living soul. I mean, a living soul? Seriously? So when it's a bird or a beast of the ground, it's a creature, but when it's a human, it's a soul? Like, it's the exact same word in Hebrew. Nefesh is nefesh, but in English, creature and soul have wildly different connotations. And so this is precisely why we need to go back to the original. Because our beloved KJV Bibles, while being beautiful pieces of literary achievement, were constructed to fit the agenda of their translators. So, we need to be skeptical about where it differs from the actual text. Because this division of living things into different categories of the soul is not in the tradition of the scriptures, but rather in the tradition of Western classical philosophy. This notion was brought to the religious culture of Europe via Thomas Aquinas, who in turn relied heavily on Aristotle if you're familiar with this tripartite division of the soul. So you have the first layer, which is vios. This is the word where we get uh, biology from. And this is the basic, you know, reproduction, the vegetative soul. And then the next level you have zoe. You know, you can think of the word zoology. This is all about movement. So this is the animal soul. Of course, the word animal comes from the Latin word for soul, which is anima, which means something that moves. I'll touch on that in a minute because it's interesting. But then you have the third layer, which is uh, psyche, or we often think of it as psyche in our modern English pronunciation, but the original Greek is psyche, and this contains the rationality. So in Aristotelian philosophy, man contains all three, 
Animals contain Vios and Zoe, and of course the plants only contain Vios. So this isn't a philosophy podcast, but this is important to understand because it's present in much of our theology and most, if not all, English Bible translations. So let's cut that off now and allow ourselves to submit to what the original is saying. And I'd like to, to stop here and, and emphasize a couple of things. Um, one, like Blaze said, this is not a philosophy podcast. Our main goal with this podcast is to submit to the scriptures and study them. But um, these little tangents are meant to address potential questions that, that listeners may have. I'd like to say a word on Bible translations in general. Every English translation that we have today is... Um, is, or at least started as, a revision of a previous English translation. I'll include in the show notes a diagram of how um, the uh, Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible and the King James Version, the, the three, um, three of our earliest English Bibles, developed in uh, the form of revisions on and on and on eventually to our you know, collection of 20 to 30 English versions today. Why do we have so many? That's another conversation. We have to remember that there is not a single translator that has not read the content of the scriptures, who doesn't know the general story being told. And, and that being said, anytime they're working on a translation, they have this sort of confirmation bias where they're, they're taking the things that they know and they're reading from the original language um, English ideas or modern Western philosophical ideas. Ideas that were not present in the minds of the original authors, or if they were, they were being purposefully subverted to tell a very specific truth that is only illuminated by the Hebrew language or the original languages, uh, like with Greek and the New Testament. It's all illuminated by those original languages through the scriptural truth. So we don't mean to bash your version of the Bible or English translations in general. They serve their own function. But when we point these things out, it's really, really important to remember that we're not commenting on your philosophy or your theology. We're trying to, we're trying to show what we have found the scriptures to be saying through a delicate study of the original languages. And yeah, by... Through the Hebrew on its own terms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so here's the thing. I mean, this has been and can be translated well in the past. In the Septuagint, right, this is the first translation of the Bible. The, the Greek renders nefesh chaya to sikon zozon, right? So there's, there, there's our psyche and there's our, our zoe that we were talking about earlier with Aristotle. But it's used differently because it's used the same way whenever it's talking about humans or animals. So the usage of the Greek in the Bible is not at all identical or even in the same ballpark as how Aristotle used it. So in the Septuagint or the New Testament writings after it used the Greek word psyche, it's not Aristotle's usage of it, but a translation of nefesh as it was originally expressed in the Hebrew. And when we take into account the environment that the Septuagint was translated in, which was Ptolemaic Alexandria, the Greeks who would have read it would have been more familiar with Aristotle's usage. So the Bible's blatant equity between the sequel and zozone of both man and beast, may have even been shocking to them. And see, that's the point, right? That's what scripture does. That's why 
we chose the reading, that specific reading from Revelation to be in all of our intros because Scripture, when we first approach it, it's sweet. You know, we might feel inspired by it. It's it's awesome how this this piece of literature was created and how it affects us and moves us. But then it becomes bitter because what does it do? It it challenges our preconceived notions of our theology, of our worldview, of ourselves as human beings. I mean, the the Bible says human beings came from dirt. I mean, if I, no matter what time of in history you're in, if you go up to somebody and say, you're dirt, I mean, that's not a compliment, you know? It's purposefully belittling the role of the human being because, as Father Paul Tarazi often says, there's only one character in the Bible who is allowed to have an ego, and that's God, <laughs> you know? And so, what does this do, right? It invites us, it invited the Greeks before them to go back to the Hebrew to see how these words are being used originally. Now, we don't have time to really go into it, um, but I would recommend our listeners to read the prologue to the book of Sirach, because I think that is the clearest it couldn't be any more clear. The, the the clearest layout of the intent behind what the Septuagint was trying to do, which was precisely to invite the Greeks to the Torah in, in Hebrew. It's plainly stated. And so kind of capping what we've been talking about with translations That's the best thing a translation can do for you, is to point you back to the original text. You know? It it doesn't... You don't use the original text to make your translation better. (laughs) You know, you use the, the translation as a springboard, and then that takes you to the original. Yeah, absolutely. And a little bit more on that idea of confirmation bias, that's, that's precisely, um, I think, an Achilles heel that a lot of translators face, whether they recognize it or not. Um, It's something that both Blaze and I are constantly trying to avoid as we look at the original text. When we read another language, there is um, like a converter in our head that's putting the original language into our native language in our minds, right? Because you think your thoughts exist in your mind in your native language. Um, and then as you explore different languages more and more, that might change a little bit. But um, I've noticed with myself, when I'm reading Hebrew, I have to consciously take the action to not read the Hebrew in English, if you know what I mean. Like, I read Bereshit bara Elohim, and so on and so forth. And I have to stop myself from thinking, in the beginning, right. God created. I have to hear the, head, the, yeah. Yeah, the totality of the of the of the Hebrew grammar and, and, and verbiage being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a different world, and you have to convert yourself to that mentality. But what's, what's the bottom line here? You know, why, why am I bringing this up? It's because when you realize that nefesh hayah simply means a living, a moving creature, then you're not putting human beings on this special place that Scripture never put them on to begin with. Right, so it's inappropriate <laughs> to to say that human beings have a soul when you're not applying that same thing to the 
to the animals and vice versa, right? The Hebrew is just saying human beings are alive, just like everything else. You know, and, and you know, it's, it's fine, you know, if we still have questions like, what does this mean about the soul and, and all that? Well, that's why we're patient and we keep learning because the, the Bible does not give us e- easy answers up front. That's a misconception, you know? The, the, the Bible is, is not a book of answers, right? It's a, it's a command, and we'll get more into that as the reading continues. Um, but allow yourself to have questions. Allow yourself to just submit to the Scriptures because it rules you, not the other way around, you know? And that's something that we have to, to consciously be aware of, you know? So I, I bring up these places where it's been translated better when even in the Latin with uh, St. Jerome... You know, he was very passionate about the Hebrew, and he used the word anima when, whenever he translated nefesh. And anima is, is such a good translation because there's that notion of movement, which is why it's a shame that with Western civilization, it, it's in the purview of Aristotle through Thomas Aquinas, which is crazy to me because he would have been reading it in Latin, so you would think that he would go with the Hebrew understanding, and not the Aristotelian one. And so many of us think in terms of Aristotle, it's so pervasive. That's why, that's why, that's why I'm, I'm putting so much attention on this, because so much of our theology is not biblical, you know, in origin. <laughs> it it goes, back, goes back to Aristotle. Yep. Yeah, all those things are a lot flashier. So, yeah, it is. So we, yeah, so it, it makes see. makes makes us feel better, right? It makes yeah. us look better. Yeah, yeah. But when we look at the original language, we can see how all the importance we place on the human beings is totally dismantled. So moving on to verse twenty-one, this is when uh, it says in the English, "So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, and which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind." And God saw that it was good. This is interesting because it, it harkens us back to what we've already talked about, about God taking control of these scary, chaotic forces. Well, we've already established that the waters are scary, and they're made even more scary because what lives in the waters? Dragons and, and uh, the Leviathan and um, giant water serpents, which is r- literally what in the Hebrew... Uh, in this verse is Tananim uh, Hagedolim. Um, you know, if we think of about the word Leviathan, the T-A-N at the end of that, Leviathan or however you want to pronounce that, that's Tananim. It refers to scary water serpents. And, you know, if you uh, know where Leviathan appears later on in the Bible, it's uh, basically the embodiment of Tohu Wabohu, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of God's nemeses. And so, again, why is this important? Well, because, again, this is showing God's complete control over things as unknown and chaotic as the, the, the seas, so it's, it's still playing into this. So everything that humans fear is in God's hands. And so verse 22, this is super important for many reasons. So this is the first blessing of reproduction, the spreading of the seed. Be fruitful and multiply. 
So let's hear it in the Hebrew. It's it's very nice and poetic. I love this part. <laughs> I, I, I love the the uh, be fruitful and multiply in Hebrew. It's peru or revu o melu. I mean, it's just, uh, it just sounds so good. If you ever listen on YouTube, there's, there's plenty of recordings. Just listen to Genesis 1 being read out by a rabbi who knows a little bit more what he's doing <laughs> with uh, the Hebrew recitation. And man, it's it sounds good. Every time this pops up, it's so epic, you know, because it, it, it repeats itself so much. And then um, same thing with like Vaihichen. I love the finality that that has every time, you know, God saw that it was good and it was so. Um, but it's it's very nice and poetic. And I think it's the climax of this section because it reveals again why the introduction of animal life was prefaced by such a strong emphasis on movement as opposed to the static nature of vegetation. The job of all animals is to move around. That's what they're there for. And so we have animals moving in the Shemayim, that is the sky, and the Mayim and Yamim, that is the waters and the seas. And now it's time for animals that move on the ground. So I talked a little bit at the beginning of the episode about the patterns and the order of which things are introduced. Um, and, and it's very poetic. It has, a, it has a, a rhythm to it. So again, in the original Hebrew, it would have been easier to hear, but I don't expect all of our listeners to know biblical Hebrew. In fact, we are still students ourselves and, and will forever be. Uh, but if we recall every time an aspect of nature is introduced in this story, uh, the way in which it is is telling, and this is no exception. So God says for the thing to be, and then he probably, uh, asa, he makes it. Uh, and then he, uh, kara or vayikra, he calls it uh, to be, you know, whatever it is that, that it'll be. And, and lastly, um, like we see here, he commands it to do something. And sometimes that command is wrapped up in the, in the calling, in the kara. So here... The, the blessing that he issues to the sea creatures and the birds to be fruitful and multiply is not our English idea of blessing, like to, to make something happy. Like when you say, oh, God bless you, it's not, uh, it's not the same as this. Because when we hear, oh, God bless you, we think, I hope God does you good. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, but here, the word is the Hebrew word barak, so here, God is blessing the nefesh chaya to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth that he has made so that it's no longer bohu, right? From tohu, babohu. He's giving them blessing in the form of a command. Uh, there's, a, there's a different word in Hebrew that, that is the sort of bless to make happy. And in English, we, we translate both as bless. So it's important to, to notice the nuance here. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
So, of course, verse 24 introduces us to the land animals, or in Hebrew, the behemah. You may hear a connection with the behemah and the word behemoth, which is the plural form and connotes a powerful animal. That's why Job uses it in that way. But the word behemah in the singular simply means something resembling a mammal or quadruped. Here the animal is described as a behemah remesh, that is, an animal that crawls or creeps on the earth. Notice again the emphasis on movement. Since verse 20, everything has been on the move. And I want to doubly emphasize this point. We really should remember that the word simply refers to animals, as Blaise said, quadrupeds, many of the times that it appears in our English Bibles. The three words used in the Hebrew are simply contributing to this introduction of land animals as a player in this game of of reality that God is putting together. Uh, The English often renders, English translations often render all three of these words with different identities, which is fine because they're different words, Uh, but there is no evidence to support their really, really specific translations as identifiable English words. And I'll illustrate what I mean here. So looking in verse 25 specifically, the words for these animals, as it appears in English, makes us think of three very specific animals or type of animals. And those are beast, livestock, and creeping things. That's literally how the ESV translates them. But I would like to illustrate how all three can be translated in a more generic sense, which I think is what the authors were going for, as a living or moving thing. In our language, the word beast has a specific connotation of a monster, or this, this uh, vicious, ominous thing, uh, something frightening. But here in the Hebrew, it's just the word chaya. We can only responsibly translate this as beast if the context provides the idea of fear or might or something like that to make us think of a mighty beast or a a fearsome beast and that kind of thing. Here in in Genesis 1, you know, in this section where we're being introduced to the word, there is nothing to suggest that translation. Yeah, it's more of a difference between what I was saying earlier, the behemoth of Job and just your average, ordinary behemoth. Yeah. The cattle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So here, the word chayah is in the construct state, so it's it's chayat. Uh, and, and a little bit about the construct state, simply what it means is that the word in the construct state depends on the word following it in, in, in the sentence in Hebrew. So if I were to say men of God, the word men is in the construct state because it depends on God to give it its attribute. Okay, so back to the text, chayat is the noun chaya for living thing in the construct state. And the word that follows it is ha'aretz, which hopefully we remember by now is the earth. So literally in the Hebrew, it is the living creatures of the earth. Chayat ha'aretz. The next word we've heard a little bit about is the Hebrew word bahima, already explained by Blaze as simply being an animal or quadruped often referring specifically to cattle and livestock. Uh, But I would argue that this context, like I did with the previous word, 
is not so specific. Uh, although the original hearer would understand the connection to livestock, because what does livestock, what do cattle do? They graze, right? So we were introduced to the living things of the sea. We understand uh, the living things of the sea and the flying flyers to have this uh, vitality to them, as Blaze illustrated earlier. So with the behima, we are introduced to another type of movement. But if we consider what the animal does, grazing, that's further illustrated. And lastly, we have the Hebrew word remes, which is a noun derived from the word ramas, which means to creep slowly or move about. Uh, and here in the text, it is also in the construct state, prepended to a very special new word, adama. So it follows that here, this would best be translated as moving thing of the ground, not things that creep on the ground. There's nothing to suggest that sort of eerie, snake-like quality that we think when we think of creeping, or maybe you, know, maybe you think of like how bugs creep. There's nothing to suggest that. If we hear the text in the original, in this context, we hear not beast, livestock, and creeping thing, but living thing of the earth, animal that grazes, and moving thing of the ground. It is a functional triumvirate. They are all one and the same. As scriptural Hebrew utilizes repetition, I would argue that this is no exception. We get three different words communicating extremely similar ideas to communicate the function of all land animals. They are to live and graze and move about. Humans are no exception to this. And if you noticed, while talking about this verse, there's something really curious going on. So let's remind ourselves again, and let's listen to verse 25 in the Hebrew. Vaya'as Elohim et hayat ha'aretz lemena ve'et ha'behoma lemena ve'et ko'uremes ha'adama lemenahu vayar Elohim ketov. Did you catch that? We've been introduced to a new word for ground, which is not Eretz, but Adama. And this is the first time we've heard this word. So clearly, it is very important. Adama. What does that sound like? It must be pointing to something, but what is it pointing to? I imagine many of you know, but we'll leave that for next week. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. The tree which is planted by the streams of the water.